Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. I've called this message the postponement of Moses because now he's made to wait for 40 years. Just let that one sink in. Think, 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 40 years. If we were in the middle of a 40-year wait, and that's a long time, what's your faith going to do? highly prefer instant results, but like it or not, some things take time, including our faith. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Favarez reveals a lesson in patience from the story of Moses. As a young man, Moses desired to help his people, but he had to wait in the desert for 40 long years before God was ready to use him. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 7 for a message called The Postponement of Moses. And now here's Pastor Mike. I'd like to talk about your eyesight. I don't know how you're doing with your optometrist, whether you need glasses or whether you wear contacts, maybe you're nearsighted, farsighted. But even if you smugly sit here and report that your eyesight is perfect, prideful person you, uh, <laughs> I know that no matter how good your eyesight is, there are plenty of factors that can uh, affect your eyesight. You could sit down in the chair at your optometrist, he can put the point to the chart up on the wall and say, read it and turn the lights out. I don't care how good your eyesight is. If it's dark, you're going you're gonna to struggle. Or he can peel that thing off the wall and he can walk out of the door and go across the lobby and maybe the doors line up and he can go across the street and now it looks like a little postage stamp and he says, read it. You're going to have trouble. And if his assistant comes in and has a fog machine and sprays the fog around in the room and Sprinklers come on between the chart and your eyes. I don't care. You got 20-20 vision. You're not going to do well with that. Distance in particular. If I put you in the back of my truck and I said, look at the face of someone you love and study the details of their face. And then we drove down the street and that face would become just increasingly small and blurry and hard to focus on. Distance is to the eye what time can be to our faith. We can have the scales fall off, 2 Corinthians 4.4. You can see clearly that Christ is real, that God's truth is true, and that his promises are faithful. And you can imagine what that's like, that God is going to, as Isaiah 40 says, if there's a valley, it's going to be lifted up. If there's a mountain, it's going to be made low. If there's something crooked, he's going to make it straight. The kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And you can say, I, I, I see it. I believe it. I trust it. I'm going to live in light of that truth. Christ is the king, and I'm going to be a faithful servant of that king. And then the crooked things don't get made straight and the valleys don't get lifted up and the mountains don't get leveled and time between promise and fulfillment starts to elapse and the wait is protracted. And that, unless you have some binoculars, unless you have some aid, the lights go down, unless you have a flashlight, you need more than the unaided eye. 
You need, you need help. You need focus. You need equipment. Time and trouble, the fog of adversity, the waiting for God to do what he says he will do. Those are, those are hard things for our faith. And by faith, of course, unless you're new, I hope you know we're talking about confidence in what we know is right and what is true. Faith is not believing something we know is not true. It's believing in something we have reasonable, rational, logical, acceptable reasons to say this is right. God is true. God exists. He's revealed himself. His book bears the marks of his revelation and inspiration, and I'm going to take it at face value. Waiting for God to do what he said he's going to do is inevitable. What's not inevitable is that you wait well. He told a lot of parables about the fact you better learn to wait well. I think of Luke 12. He says, you ought to be like people, servants of a master who goes on a trip, and you better be ready, dressed, prepared for action, so that when the master comes back and knocks, you will open the door at once. And he said, how blessed is the servant who does that, even if it's the second or third watch in the night, that you didn't let time dim your faith, that you had the confidence to say, I believe what God said, and I believe it is true, and I'm not wavering. If we don't learn that now, we're in trouble. And maybe your Christian life's already expressing that trouble, your compromise, your lack of assurance, your lack of being drawn to the truth of God like you used to. We've been studying in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's giving this response. It's the longest recorded response in the book of Acts of any sermon, any speech. He's standing before the same council that condemned Christ. It was the Sanhedrin, the top leadership adjudicating council of Israel, and they had just dragged his pastor in there a few chapters earlier, and Peter was there, beaten and arrested. Now Stephen is there, and he's having to respond to the accusations. And they've rejected Christ, they've rejected his pastor, they're rejecting his message, and they're claiming that they're right and that he's blaspheming Moses. And so one of the things he does here in the middle section of his speech is he talks about Moses and this chapter or movement of him in Pharaoh's court in Egypt being prepared. We talked about that last time. And then this middle section where he's in the Midian desert, he gets to the place where he's just done in, in Egypt because they're not interested in hearing what he has to say. And the amazing thing is, and of course, he lives longer than we generally live today, back in the day, closer to the flood and creation. He lives to be 120 years old, but he's got 40 years of knowing that he has been prepped to be a part of God's solution to the problem. And he's acting on the promise of Abraham, which was you're going to have a land and it's not Egypt, it's in Canaan. And as we started our passage last time, it said as the, as the fulfillment of that promise drew near, these things happened. Well, he's like, okay, this is it. God has made a promise. He's going to fulfill it. He's prepared me to play a role in it. Let's go get it. And I've called this message the postponement of Moses because now he's made to wait for 40 years. Just let that one sink in. Think, 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 40 years. If I said that you had to wait for something for four years, that'd be a long time, right? 10 years, long time. If we were in the middle of a 40-year wait, 
And God has prepared you for something, and he's made a promise, and he says, I'm going to do it. And then you're made to wait for 40 years. And if let's just say we're 20 years into it. What was going on 20 years ago? And you got, no, you got another 20 years to go. I mean, that's a long time. What's your faith going to do? What point do you just say, I'm not interested in reading anymore about, you know, the truth of God. I'm not interested in praying anymore to this God who's made these promises. It's easy for your faith to wane. So I want to look at this middle section of Stephen's speech, and I don't want to confuse it, but I do know talk about three balls, right? You've got the Christological truths. How does these stories relate to Christ? We have the, um, uh, the lessons themselves. What do we learn from Moses? And then we have the defense. What's the defense? And I don't want to take too much time on this, but do know that the defense is clearly here in this passage, which is you think you stand with Moses, and you might now stand with Moses. You don't understand him fully. But Stephen says they rejected Moses. Just like you rejected Christ, you rejected my pastor, Peter. You're rejecting me. You're rejecting our message. This Moses that you so heavily lean on as your guy, he was rejected by God's people. So be careful who you reject. I mean, there's the underlying message of the defense. Right? Be careful who you reject. Let's look at these verses. Acts chapter 7, verses 23 through 29 as Stephen says, let's consider these middle 40 years of his life. Verse 23, let's read this together and get a sense of what he's saying that we might learn from that this morning. This is all a recapitulation, retelling of Exodus chapter 2. When he was 40 years, Moses, of course, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. And there's a big statement, and we can read a little bit more about it in Exodus 2. We don't have a ton on it, but the idea of, listen, I... I'm not an Egyptian, I'm an Israelite, and I have been specially prepared, providentially prepared to do something about this plight, and I'm going to go. I'm going to check this out. I'm going to see what's going on. So this is a shift. This isn't just, hey, I'm going to go see what's happening. Of course, he knows what's happening in the kingdom, but he, he's making a shift right here. It's a decision that Hebrews 11 talks about. We're going to look at that in a second, but he's making a decision as to who he's going to identify with. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man. So one of the Israelites is being oppressed. We can assume he's being beaten because he's going to respond with violence. So he's probably being violently attacked. Get a sense of that in Exodus 2. And he avenged him. He stepped in. Self-protection, uh, you know, he was defending this man, right? He's stepping in as a defender. And he struck him down. And he killed him, right? Striking down the Egyptian. Now, here's the commentary. It's helpful. He supposed that his brothers, the Israelites, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Read that again. Supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Do you see how that echoes into the defense of Stephen, right? Jesus came here offering salvation to the Sanhedrin, and you did not understand that he was here as the means of spiritual forgiveness and salvation, that you get it right with your maker. My pastor was just here. You beat him and had him arrested. You told him to stop preaching the message that could save you. Now I'm here. I mean, you keep talking about Moses. You're concerned about Moses's reputation and whether I'm blaspheming or not. He was misunderstood, which by the way, if you're a Christian, I assume you are being misunderstood to the extent that you're vocal about the truth of the gospel, you go into our culture and you say things like, 
Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him? If you say there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Buddha doesn't work, Islam doesn't work, Hinduism doesn't work, look at all the monks on you know, the, the, the news feeds, and they're all going to hell unless they trust in Christ because there's no other way to get saved. This is the lifeboat, right? This is it. You, you, there's no other way. So the Bible says, and out of love, we say, get to the lifeboat. Get in it. It's the only means of salvation. There's a flood coming. Here's an ark. There's only one way to get out of it. This is it. The means of salvation has been graciously granted. You start saying, hey, guys, I have the answer for you. You guys are in sin, and you need to repent, and you need to get right with God, and the only way to do that is in Christ. Share that with all your coworkers this week and see if they understand it. I'll bet that they'll not understand it. I'll bet 95% of them will not understand it. And that's the reality for Moses, just like it was for Christ and Peter and Stephen. On the following day, verse 26, he appeared to them, these two guys. He had just avenged the beatings, their oppression. You'd think that it would be like, hey, here he comes, our, our, our savior, right? Our, our redeemer, the leader, going to get us out of, out of slavery in Egypt. Well, they're quarreling with each other, and he tried to reconcile them. And he said, man, why are your brothers? Why do you wrong each other? Let's stop. We need to unite. But the man who was wronging his neighbor, strong word here, thrust him aside, rejected him, saying, who made you a ruler or a judge over us? What's the answer to that question? Look at verse 35. Drop down real quick to verse 35. We're going to get this in the next section. This Moses whom they rejected, and they said stuff like this, who made you a ruler or a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. Just like you've rejected Christ, God sent him as ruler and redeemer. And just like you're rejecting me as the ambassador of that ruler and that redeemer, you're rejecting that. Who made you a ruler? God did. But we're going to find out now, he's going to be shelved for 40 years. And they said something that scared him. And they said something that imperiled his life, which is, the word is out, right? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So now you're not going to side with me. You're going to side with them. And you're going to wrap me out. And I can't even go back now to my home. I'm going to have to pack my bags and leave. And that's what happens. Verse 29. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, a desert land. He became the father of two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, by Zipporah, the daughter of the priest, uh, Jethro, also known as Reguel. So he starts a family in the desert and it lasts for 40 years, four decades. Rejection, thrust aside. Why? Because of a misunderstanding. Verse 25. If you're not being rejected because of your Christianity, then you're not very, very clear about your Christianity. And so I don't want to assume that. And you may say, oh, here he goes again, you know, Christianity is all negative, it's a battle. Okay, I'm sorry. It's just, the, it's the facts. Because I still get the emails, I still get people talking to me, you're, you're making it sound like to be a Christian, people are going to not like you. And I haven't found that to be my experience. Well, let me help you with that. Um, let me tell you a few things you should tell your friends this week. Things like we're sinners. Things like we need to repent. Things like judgment is coming on the world. Things like the things that God has said about our ethics, right? Those are binding on all people, right? Abortion is not reproductive rights. Homosexuality is not just someone's choice they make in a bedroom. These are things that store up wrath for the day of God's judgment. Let me help you with that. Go, go share that thoroughly biblical truth with other people this week and see what happens. 
I don't want to enjoy that. I'm not a masochist. I don't like it. But if you're identified with Christ, that's the reality. Picture the most unpopular political figure, former political figure in our country. Now imagine the culture's hatred for that person, and you are his wife. I don't care how beautiful you are. I don't care how charming you are. I don't care how well you dress. I don't care how sophisticated you are. I don't care how kind and charitable and generous you are. You think you're going to be liked by the culture? You think you're going to be on the covers of magazines like former beloved political figures' wives? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Why? Because the culture has decided we don't like you. I'm asking you to stand with flawed and foibled political figures. I'm asking you to stand with the perfect Christ who gave his life for your co-workers, who says to them, if you say you see, your blindness remains, John 9. You got to admit you're blind. I'll give you sight. You got to admit you got a problem. You have to repent. You have to see your sin as a perilous danger that will send you to a Christless eternity we keep reading about where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The flood is coming. Get on the ark. You stand with that Christ in this culture, you will not be liked. I want you to get God's perspective on that. If you're taking notes, just the first three verses, put it down that way. Seek God's perspective in the rejection. You, number one, should be rejected. And let me say that as strongly as I can. Let me quote the words of Christ that are much stronger than my own words. John chapter 15, verse 9. Listen carefully, please. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But as it is, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Okay, guys, I didn't say that. Jesus Christ said that. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But as it is, I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. He's very clear in the context. Do you think you're going to do better than I did with the culture? You're married to someone the culture hates because they don't like his sexual ethics. They don't like the narrow-minded exclusivity of his means of salvation. They don't like bowing the knee. I think about my, non, my conversations in evangelism with non-Christians. I don't like all this submission to God stuff. That's not my kind of religion. God doesn't want me to submit to him. Everything about Christianity is going to be rejected, to quote 1 Corinthians 2, by the natural man. You know, the Spirit of God, you do not get this. And what I'm saying is you need to get God's perspective in that. And to quote John, John 13, he says, you know, if they reject you, here's the perspective, they reject me. And if they reject me, they reject the one who sent me. Now, let's just think about that. You say something in the workroom this week about the sanctity of life. You say something about monogamy, about heterosexuality. You say something about salvation in Christ. You say something about hell, the reality of judgment after this life. If they reject that, clear. I mean, the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of those things in the Bible, so clear. They reject you, not invited to their parties this Friday, and they're rejecting Christ who sent you, and they're rejecting the God who made them that sent Christ. There's a perspective for you to say, okay, when they said to Moses, who made you judge and ruler over us? We thrust you aside. Who are they thrusting aside? 
They were thrusting God aside. They were thrusting the means of salvation aside. We got to get a better perspective on this. We need to understand the rejection from God's perspective. But first, and I can't really preach this section of his life without taking to Hebrews 11. Can you go to Hebrews chapter 11? Drop down to verse 24. The decision you need to make, and again, this is a whole nother sermon, but I at least have to say it because some of you sit here today as undercover Christians. You aren't known at work as a Christian. Your neighbors don't know you're Christians. You don't want to be counted with Christ. You don't want to shove your religion down anyone's throat. Those are your words that justify your secrecy. I just need to tell you, you need to make a decision where you stand. And this picture of Moses standing with the Israelites when he had every advantage to stand with the Egyptians is the decision that we face. Look at verse 24 in this passage. By faith, and this is what's lacking for some of us, because if I could show you and prove to you that Christ were coming back tomorrow and every critic and every rebel and every insurrectionist, every every immoral person, every blasphemer, everyone's going to have to bow the knee to Christ and they will grovel at his feet. If that were happening tomorrow at two in the afternoon and you knew it, I bet everything would be different if you had that faith, like that promise was there and the fulfillment was right behind it. If you really believed the judge was standing at the door, you believed even though it's the third watch of the night that he's going to knock and tomorrow the door will be open. I think you would have faith, confidence to do the things that Moses did here. When he was grown up, he's 40 years old, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't have to agree with the culture. He said, I'm not going to be associated with that. As Paul said so powerfully in Galatians 6, he says, the world is crucified to me and I to it. I'm, I'm just done being counted with the world. I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather verse 25, to be mistreated with the people of God, because the culture didn't like them, matter of fact, they saw them as a threat, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And some of you right now are choosing sin by your silence. You're choosing acceptance over loyalty to Christ. You're listening to the beginning of a message called The Postponement of Moses from Pastor Mike Favares here on Focal Point. And if you've missed any of the previous messages in this series, you can easily catch up online at focalpointradio.org. We're glad you joined us today, and we're especially grateful for friends who give generously to support this ministry. Won't you join them and become a Focal Point partner? Your support is vital to help keep Mike's no-nonsense biblical teaching on the air in your community. So make your first monthly gift today by calling 888-320-5885 or go online to focalpointradio.org. And Pastor Mike has selected an excellent book to go along with our current series titled The Most Misused Stories in the Bible by Eric Bargerhoff. It's full of fascinating historical and scriptural insights to help you sort through modern-day distortions of 14 well-known Bible stories and grasp their original meaning and purpose for your life today. Request your copy of the most misused stories in the Bible when you call to donate at 888-320-5885 or go online to focalpointradio.org. And before we wrap up today, Pastor Mike has one more special announcement. Hi, Pastor Mike Fabar is here. In the summer of 2024, I'll be teaching the Bible on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. I want you to come with me. 
from August the 4th through August the 11th, 2024, we're going to discover the splendor of God's word while we explore the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Join us for world-class dining, daily teaching, worship. It'll be an unforgettable experience. So don't wait to book your spot. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska to learn more. Book your spot today at focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Now, if someone gave you a gift but told you that you had to work for it, what would you think? Well, that's the dilemma we face when we're unclear about what God does for us and what He expects us to do for Him. And tomorrow, we're sitting down with Pastor Mike Fabares to figure out the difference between justification and sanctification. I'm your host, Dave Drury, inviting you to tune in to Ask Pastor Mike Friday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. I pray today's message will help you live out your faith with truth and love. After all, that's the kind of biblical faith that changes lives and transforms a crooked culture. But if you haven't truly surrendered your life to Christ, then I'd like to invite you to get in touch. We'd love to pray with you and help you discover God's plan of salvation. Visit focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.